Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Professor Robert Nash, director and founder of Fighter Quest Limited, a company which uses science to innovate natural ingredients and compounds in the high margin healthy living products emerging from the convergence of food, pharmaceuticals and cosmetics. Robert, welcome. Great to have you on the program today. Good morning, Scott. Good morning to you, Robert. Now, one topic that has really brought the topic of effective leadership under the microscope at the moment is, of course, the current coronavirus situation. And we have seen some real contrasting approaches to that over the past few weeks. So we've had Giuseppe Conte in Italy, for example, who was very swift in putting the whole country on lockdown. And then we had Boris Johnson in the UK, where we've taken a much less hands-on approach up to this point. The money's there, the procedures are in place, but in many ways, we were just waiting to see what happens, even though talk of a lockdown is now being mooted. But taking that away from politics just for a moment, which approach as a leader do you generally prefer to take when dealing with difficulties? Would you rather dive straight in and get on top of the situation, or would you tend to let things play out a bit and see how they develop before taking action? It depends how serious the problem is. In, in general, my approach would be to let things play out. Um, but it, it, to be honest, there are a lot of unknown factors in this coronavirus outbreak. And, uh, and uh, I think probably it's wise to just see how things go at the moment. Things don't seem too bad in this country, but you know, uh, we don't know what's going to happen really. Yeah, of course. Um, it's important, of course, um, to have that um, ability to be reactive as well as proactive as a leader, especially in situations like this, wouldn't you say? Yes, that's right. So I, so I had one member of staff who came in to do one task today and then she's gone back home again because we have one older member of staff who will be coming in later. So uh, having a flexible approach is very important, I think, in, in this type of situation and, and trying to learn from what's happening around the country and, uh, you know, take, taking that on board and, you know, organizing your policies accordingly. For sure. Now, based on your own experience in a leadership position there, Robert, would you have any advice for leaders who are facing difficult situations, not just in the context of today in the outbreak, but in any situation, really? Well, I, I, as, as a um, boss of a scientific company, it's quite important to, that we're always quite flexible and we, we give the, the staff freedom to really you know, feel they have some ownership over their own projects and work so that if they are at home, they will actually be working um, and, and carrying on with their, 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 their work related to what we're interested in. So I, I think giving people some ownership and some feeling that they're actually contributing to the, the company is, is, I think, very important to, to make sure that people are productive when they're perhaps not there um, for you to keep an eye on them. Absolutely. And did you always imagine yourself, uh, Robert, that you'd end up in a leadership position yourself? Not at all. It, it, it kind of happened by accident, really, um, in that uh, I, was, I was a scientist. I did some work which got a lot of attention, and therefore we, we attracted a lot of investments, which, which required me to be in charge because the investors saw me as a, a key person to take the research forward. So my group grew very quickly um, some 20 years ago. And... Um, it, 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 I'm seen as being a key a key worker, if you like. So I, I have to take a management role. If I if I don't take a key role, then there'll be no investments in the company. Absolutely. And what sort of qualities do you feel are vital to be a leader in a role such as yours? Well, science may be a bit different from 
from other um, businesses. So mm. we, we we need to give, as I said, some ownership of the staff to, to the projects they're working on. So they, they feel they're contributing. They have an interest themselves in the work that's going on and the, the applications. So, you know, we're trying to find new medicines for people um, to, to, to improve on current treatment. So they, they feel they're doing something which is for the good of mankind. And it's, it's important, I think, to give them the feeling that they're contributing themselves. They're not just being told what to do by, by me, and, and that, that works very well. You know, people are very enthusiastic. They think about things when they're not in, in the office or the lab, and um, you know, that, that freedom, I think, is quite important, but it does mean you need people who are highly motivated or highly self-motivated, and we've been very lucky in, in, in attracting those sorts of people into the company. For sure. And um, is it important uh, from a recruitment point of view for yourself to look at people who do have that self-motivation, that ability to take things into their own hands and be sort of independent in that way, as it were? We, it's certainly something we look for in, in the more um, senior people we take on, but it's also important, I think, to give the opportunity to, to younger people. So we've had a lot of young people who come in who quite often I thought, well, you know, they don't have much experience um, they weren't, in some cases, they weren't necessarily very well trained in science, but we've been really, um, you know, uh, highly, highly pleased by the way some of those people have turned out and some of them have gone on then to get uh, higher scientific qualifications and gone on to quite senior jobs in sometimes big research companies. That's really interesting because with young people, it's really important um, that you look at what you can develop, the potential that's there rather than sort of the ready-made product, as it were. Taking that back into leadership and leadership figures, do you think great leadership um, is something that you can learn throughout life or is it something that certain people are born with, do you think? Some people seem to be more or less born with it. Some some people have to learn it. So that, that was certainly the case for me. Um, uh, you know, I've had a number of bosses before I became a, a boss myself, and you, you, you learn from the things they do right and the things they, they do wrong. Um, and also you learn that sometimes they seem to be not very good leaders, but you, you realize that when you become a leader what the problems are in actually trying to manage people and, uh, and the, you know, the range of different characters and personalities you, you have to manage. So sometimes it's not very easy. But... Um, that, that that strong self-motivation is really quite crucial for what we do. So that, that's what we look for, even in people who don't have much experience and, and qualifications. If they're enthusiastic enough, then we, we can work with that and, uh, and get them experienced in, and trained in what they need to do. Mm. And are there maybe any examples of leaders living or dead throughout history who've maybe had an influence on your own leadership style and maybe been an inspiration to you in any way? Well, you, you may think it's rather strange, but one, one of the leaders who did influence me a lot when I was a teenager and following um, on after that was, was a chap called Ronan O'Reilly, an Irishman who you may not have heard of, Scott, but he, he ran a radio station called Radio Caroline off the East Coast, and it always impressed me that he managed to keep people out, out in the North Sea in sometimes terrible weather with very few supplies and not paying them very much, but they always sounded very enthusiastic about what they're doing, and in fact had to had to be enthusiastic to be out there. So although he wasn't strictly working within British laws, he, he managed to achieve an awful lot for, for many decades, actually, on very little, but just with enthusiasm from his workers. Absolutely. And if he were to address the staff at Fighter Quest today and just walk into the office um, this afternoon, what do you think he would actually say to them? Sorry, could you repeat the question, Scott? So, um, Ronan O'Reilly, who you just mentioned, um, if he were to walk into uh, the FireQuest offices today and address the staff at the company, what do you think he might say? 
Well, he, he, he would definitely want people to be self-motivated to to do what they think is right, but to also follow the, uh, you know, the direction of the company. So people had to follow the direction of the company and to be um, sensible about what they did and, 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 and uh, you know, lo- loyal to the company, but also sensible and, and, and not break um, any rules themselves that were set down by the company. For sure. Now, I am conscious of uh, running out of time, Robert, but before we wrap things up, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Fighter Quest and what you hope to uh, really achieve in that time? We, we've gone into a very interesting time. The, the, the coronavirus um, pandemic has actually reopened some avenues we were looking at towards antiviral um, treatments for people that we were working on some years ago and actually we brought them back to the front and we have some very interesting um, projects for developing new antivirals or molecules which may prevent spiral infections. So from our viewpoint, we'll, we'll be looking very much to actually take those forward and actually go back into looking at new treatments for viral infections. But we also have a lot of IP, so patents we've developed for other areas, um, such as new cancer treatments, new treatments for diabetes, and inflammatory disorders, which will make it a very interesting and exciting year for us, where we actually plan to expand the company quite considerably into doing more development of pharmaceutical work. And let's hope, of course, especially the proactive work um, with the coronavirus outbreak really um, does uh, bear fruit. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the program today, uh, Robert, and I'd love to get you back on in a few months' time just to see how things um, have panned out in that regard. So thanks very much again for uh, your time today and coming on. Thank you very much. and pleasure to speak to you as well. Likewise. Um, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus just who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, the blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different 
world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player. I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you right. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the 
the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after. You know that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trep Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are 
slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, that you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what did the england captaincy sort of done to prepare me 
for the role. I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help 
the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world 
we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.